No, the vet did it. You can do it yourself. Get knotted. There's no way I'm sticking my Vaseline fingers up a dog's pumper to give it a bit of a squeeze. There's no way that's happening. Forgot on your use of the word pumper. (laughs) Pumper. No way. Uh, Hugh, your Batewell tart cake was amazing. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, really did. It, it, it was a very happy birthday for my wife to be able did to you, enjoy the Cherry Bakewell uh, cake. Did you get her a present? Why would she want a present when she has a cake? Uh, she, she might want a present and a cake. Turns out that uh, she would have been satisfied with the cake all along, which is why I shouldn't have spent all that money on those Apple AirPods. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you've, you've let yourself down there. I thought you'd got to the stage in your relationship where you didn't buy each other presents. That that's that's Christmas. Just, just for Christmas, that Yes, is. we don't tend to buy each other presents at Christmas uh, for two reasons. First of all, um, why bother anymore? Just like many other aspects of our relationship. Um, and secondly, because we are spending a lot of money on other people, uh, it seems uh, understandable to try and reduce the budget a little. And then we make up an excuse that we've like, had a holiday and that was our Christmas present to each other. That makes them seem incredibly generous, doesn't it? We're buying lots of presents for lots of people. Well, that's what you traditionally tend to do at Christmas, don't you? Anyone seen any evidence of this under their tree? No. And under my tree, there are how many gifts from the four of you? You don't need I, gifts. I don't, really, I don't really believe in buying friends' presents, if I'm You honest. don't really need, need gifts, you just need cake, which takes us back to where we started. This is Set Beast Benny, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, a 14, Rory Smith, a 7, and Andy Hinchcliffe, a 9 and lychees. The uh, food has become something of a, a wander through the lockdown culinary discoveries made by a 51-year-old man of late. So, Chinch, after the confusion mm. of what a pitta does, then a microwaved hot dog, uh, what yeah. exciting new delicacy have you enjoyed recently? Uh, unsurprisingly, I had four Herter. Can I say Herter? Can I... Can I... Can I, will they sponsor us maybe in the future if I use their name? Well, it depends how nice dog. you are. Herta hot dogs, excellent. I have hot dogs every day. I love hot dogs. <laughs> I love hot dogs. You, you never do. You don't eat hot dogs every I day. Do. I do. Carly goes shopping and she brings me back. I, I get a bit disappointed when I get the normal size kind of pencil hot dogs. I like the big fat jumbo ones. You get less in a packet, but I just feel you're getting more. Uh, so you, I, I have tried to have hot dogs every day, full of protein, nutritious. Yeah, Those are hot dogs, they are the future. The only time you normally hear about people eating hot dogs in, in these quantities are when a, a dog with behavioural issues is being trained. <laughs> exactly my point. Nicky's training me up. So to I do get, what? I get, just to be a better person. Do you I have get hot the, dogs as my treat. Do you have the same flatulence problems as your dogs who are eating hot dogs? And the, So that's the food. The football is. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, is it something to do with the uh, dressing rooms and dynamism? Yes, it is. We're going to talk yeah. about dressing room dynamics. How have they changed from yesteryear, the year most favoured by the likes of Andy Hinchcliffe? Can there be a dominant force or are cliques more prevalent now? And how does the dynamic in a dressing room affect the relationship with the manager? That's fine, but just this is partly Last Dance inspired, isn't it? It will be, uh, and we shall explain the link a little bit later. Can we have a, a fairly kind of sizable tangent on whether The Last Dance is anywhere near as good as everyone's saying it is? I would like to very much. In fact, the way that I have written the, um, as has been described before by a member of the podcast crew, uh, quite lengthy but yet entertaining intro, um, it uh, will lend ourselves to that conversation as well. I'm very Hang happy on. to have it. Which of you two described him as quite entertaining? It wasn't me. <laughs> as long as one of the four of us does, and it could well be me. Um, thank you once again to all those who applied for the Set Piece Menu Live. It's not live shows. Yes, shows. Such was the response that we decided to let you provide us with even more content that will probably require less work for us. Those on the shortlist to attend have been contacted. Sorry to all those who missed out. We hope to have the first of those shows with you next week you can get in touch with the podcast setpiecemenu at gmail.com you can also uh, get in touch with us via twitter and facebook you remember last week that chris pesh emailed with suggestions of which bundesliga team that premier league followers could support mm. uh, well gabriel radus has offered up the same service for fans of championship clubs looking for a possible counterpart in rory bundesliga zwei thank you so we put it on our facebook page for you to go and have a look at that's facebook.com forward slash set piece menu 20 teams took long enough to go through last week so we're not going to do 24 uh, this week so thank you though to gabriel for all his hard work hard work albeit a little more pithy has also been done by duncan geddes who has three yes three managers most likely to on offer for us these are the questions where the answer is a manager that is not sean dyche graham potter or Nigel Pearson, because as you'll know, if you're a regular listener, that's just too easy. So Duncan has the following. Manager most likely to help a stranger fit the Ikea shopping into their car? Ralph Hasenhurtl. Yeah. 
a kindly gentleman with magnificent calves. Manager most likely to be in the meeting room that you have booked but refused to leave, Jose Mourinho. Have we not done that before? Is that not a repeat manager most likely to? If, if it so. is, Duncan's not listening and nor are we to not be able to pick up on that. Although having said that, there have been a few now of Jose Mourinho just basically being quite belligerent and unpleasant to other people. And finally, manager most likely to cough into his hand in the middle of Asda and not care that everyone's staring, Chris Wilder. <laughs> that one, yeah, slightly unfair. Uh, Michael Robinson has got in touch about SPM 179 that is the youth maturity paradox of last week dear the fab four says Michael take this as the obligatory positive remark at the beginning of the email we do Michael thank you listening to the last podcast about youth and maturity in footballers I was struck by the fact that considering the scrutiny and responsibility level of footballers by and large they appear to have a higher than average maturity level compared to the general population. However, footballer doesn't act like an idiot, doesn't really make any headlines. And so the more extreme ends of the spectrum are the ones which generate the headlines both for good and for bad. Considering all the scrutiny, it's amazing that we don't have more incidents, like, for example, Charlie Austin's rant after the VAR incident early this season. It is so commented upon because it is rare. The general public's opinions of footballers, especially Premier League ones, is pretty ropey. Just look at the reaction when Matt Hancock suggested that they take a pay cut earlier on this year. That is the British Health Secretary. And so maybe the debate should be more focused around people's perceptions of what footballers are like or how they behave versus the reality and why they have to behave in a certain way. Keep up the good work. That's Michael Robinson, who's in Reading. It's true, you know, because Hinchcliffe gets mortgage semitolon settles down isn't much of a story, is it? At the age of 16, it's a bit of a better story. But that is, um, that is very much kind of the standard for footballers they yeah he had not really thought about about it like that before but it's true that that the vast majority of what i don't know 500 players in the premier league i guess kind of 493 of them are generally blameless individuals just getting on with their lives or at least having the common decency to do all their nefarious deeds in private chinch who did you have doing the pr for you that managed to keep the Andrew Hinchcliffe buys red BMW coupe with gold alloys out of the press because that feels like that should have snuck into at least page 17. They weren't gold alloys, but they did get stolen from outside my house. I had a BMW, a red BMW estate with lovely silver alloy wheels. It was an estate, not a coupe. It wasn't a coupe. It's me, Steve. It's not going to be a sporty BMW. It was an estate, but lovely wheels. Woke up in the morning and the car was on bricks and they'd nick the wheels from underneath my bedroom. That is the chinchest thing ever, that he's, he's gone and bought a red BMW, very much party in the front, mm-hmm. estate, <laughs> business in the back. Yep, yep, yep. That's, that's me all over, isn't it? I've done a lot of money, but I've got to go to the tip. That is... <laughs> oh, I love the tip. I love going to the tip. I've always loved going to the tip. Uh, talking about why footballers do stupid things, can we recommend to Michael and indeed to you all uh, SPM 149 and 150? Uh, 149 is the aforementioned footballers doing stupid things. 150 is how do football do, footballers do amazing things. Uh, it is somewhat of a uh, non-chronological follow-up point uh, to the ones that you make, uh, Michael. Thank you. Finally, Chinchu's soccer story in the last pod took us briefly and rather unconvincingly into the realms of astrophysics. Chinch, what was your contention regarding Roy Keane in the 1995 FA Cup final? I was saying that, uh, that my mass had a, a direct effect on his performance and the, the sheer gravity of myself, not my performance, uh, pulled him in towards average footballerdom. I went on to say that Jupiter had an effect on the earth and, and Rory was, was very, very disappointed. Even though I did send something to the, um, to the, to the group WhatsApp, which yeah. wasn't replied to at all, which no. really did prove my point. Yes, taken as read and indeed fact. Well, Rory also suggested that his astrophysicist friend might take the opportunity to get in touch with some flesh on those rather wilting bones. So here is an email from Dr. Kenneth Duncan, who is the Leiden Edinburgh Astronomy Fellow at the Institute for Astronomy at the University of Edinburgh. So we he should, says, so we he should, says. We should point out that, that Ken, who's a mate my brother's, is is literally the cleverest person I know. So if he says something, it's going to be true. It's going to be true. And also, uh, admittedly, certainly from my point of view, anybody who has a four-line signature at the end of your email, you're doing pretty well. Uh, Dear Rory, Hugh, Steve and Andy, says Dr. Ken, thanks for offering the opportunity to distract myself from unravelling the history of the universe to start answering the really big questions. Firstly, Chinch wasn't entirely wrong. 
the center of mass between Jupiter and the sun is actually outside the surface of the sun. So Jupiter does indeed cause the sun to wobble as they orbit around that point. The rest of the planets do the same, but to a much lesser degree. He says then in uh, brackets, which is interesting considering what Rory just said, Brian Cox is never wrong. On the other hand, his impact on Roy Keane in the 1995 FA Cup final might be somewhat overstated unless he put on more than just a bit of extra timber. Assuming that Roy Keane could hold a sprint at around 20 kilometers an hour, and then he has an asterisk down to a postscript, which is a generous guess, given that Gareth Bale has been clocked at a peak of nearly 37 kilometers an hour, but was gravitationally bound to Chinch within half of the width of a standard Premier League football pitch, Chinch would need to have a mass of over 13 billion metric tons. <laughs> So that is getting. I did side. have a rather large pre-match meal. That's all I can say. I did have extra toast. Uh, Dr. Ken says that is getting on for the size of a small asteroid, but one large enough to potentially cause mass <laughs> extinction if he was to collide with the Earth, although not quite my area of expertise, he adds. It's probably no surprise that the knees gave up under that strain. Mm. Uh, that is from Dr. Kenneth Duncan, um, who says rather pleasantly at the end, SPM has been one of the few parts of my normal weekly routine that's been able to carry on during what has been a difficult lockdown. Please keep up the good work. So he's agreeing with what I said planetarily, but he's yes. actually disagreeing with what happened out on the football pitch. And correct me, was he, has he been a footballer or is he, is he talented in the, the world of football, Rory? Is he, is he, is he gifted uh, in that respect or not? I, be I believe that I have played football with Ken. We used yes. to... Um, you used, used him as a football? No, we used to um, play in a lead, like a five-a-side lead on like a Wednesday night near where we grew up uh, with, with Rob and a few of his mates. And I, I think Ken featured in those teams and was acceptable, Chinch. But bear I, bet in mind, he was. I bet he was one of those right-wingers that just stand out there waiting for the ball to come to them Chinch, rather than, than, than mixing in. He sounds like that type of scientist. Bear in mind... <laughs> Bear in mind, Chinch, that Ken is effectively saying that you were not fat enough. <laughs> you should you should take this as a compliment. This is a nice, it's a good thing. Rory, not fat enough then, maybe fat enough now. There's, there's, yes, there's, there's stuff yeah. out there that we, we just don't know the answers to. Maybe if he did a bit of research on this, maybe he could come up with a new thesis, a new idea. And, and maybe... I don't know, maybe it isn't all about mass. Again, let's move, let's move this back onto football because it's getting too confusing, the science, Chinch, the science part of this pod. Chinch, I don't think the 13 billion metric tonnes is leaving a great deal of wiggle room as to whether the... There's some doubt there, Steve. There is, the it is possible. It is po Dave Unsworth was the size of an asteroid. <laughs> uh, all correspondents, please, uh, whether agreeing or disagreeing with anything that has been posited by not Dr. Ken, because he's right, but Andy Hinchcliffe, uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, we start this week's subject uh, with a confession. Uh, when informing those lucky few listeners who have a chance to join us in our SPM Live It's Not Live shows that we added uh, another hoop through which they needed to jump. That was, if you had a question for the team, what would it be? Now, although this was never an attempt to simply mine our fine audience for content, it turns out that is exactly what has happened because Chris Wilkerson offered up three possible questions. We're going to steal two today because Chris, they're very good, so thank you, and you only get to do one in the show. The compensation though, Chris, will be that you will definitely have the opportunity to ask that third of the three in one of our Live It's Not Live shows. And also you get to have this rather lengthy credit giving exercise. So. On this week's pod, we are going to be talking about dressing room dynamics. Chris asks this, does the aggressive, determined and almost bullying aura still work? Then he says, in brackets, similar to what is shown and spoken of in The Last Dance. And also, as a follow-up, can a manager win back a lost dressing room or is the damage done too problematic? Firstly, if you've seen The Last Dance, apologies. If you haven't and want to, Spoiler alert. And if you're not interested, have you not been on social media during the lockdown? Because you're not a human with an opinion if you haven't told the world your opinion on The Last Dance. It is the Netflix documentary on Michael Jordan, most specifically his attempts uh, to win a sick NBA title with the Chicago Bulls in season 97 at 98, which was a peak not just for Michael Jordan, but also for many other playing different sports around the world. There are many things to consider, but the one that we're touching on today is his attitude towards and relationships with his teammates, some of whom have revealed their subsequent displeasure about how they are portrayed in the documentary. So we're asking, can there be a dominant force in the dressing room and how does its dynamic affect the relationship with the manager? Shall we have an immediate tangent at the beginning to say um, a few pointed um, things about The Last Dance. And Rory, I feel like you are chomping at the bit. Well, so this is going to be a chinch episode, isn't it? 
let's let's all let's all <laughs> so let's talk about tv honest. and then chinch can talk about football so, I, I've, I've not seen the last dance so you can I've talk as much as I'm, I'm, I'm purposely don't want to watch it because everyone else is watching it <laughs> that's hugh, very chinch hugh you will have seen it i have seen it have you seen all of it i've seen all of it i have seen the first three does it get better the problem is with something like the last dance it is an excellent documentary as a whole because what a documentary is supposed to do they're supposed to if you're document. old enough, you're supposed to document. Supposed to document something happening, give you new insights, and also if you're old enough, like like me and my generation, reflect on a time that you remember happening the first time round. It does all those things. My problem with the Last Dance is, as you mentioned earlier, Rory, this ridiculous desire for people to jump on the bandwagon, particularly on social media, to tell us their thoughts about how good the Last Dance is. Please shut up. Let everybody else enjoy it. But so I get, I get the fact that, that there's all this footage from the, docu the documentary crew that was in, embedded with, with the Bulls that season. And that's amazing to have that mm. access. I do wonder, did, did they not think to make a documentary with, about it like beforehand? Did, did they think, right, we're, we're going to film all this stuff in 1998 and then 22 years later, <laughs> it's going to really pop on social media. So is this, A, not a derivative documentary? But also, I just, I, I don't quite... I haven't found myself as gripped as I a expected to be, or b people keep telling me I should be. It's just, it's a normal, quite long sports documentary. <laughs> it's not, it's not. It doesn't strike me as being especially groundbreaking. I am wondering whether something turns up in the later episodes that makes me think I was wrong. This is in fact the best thing I've ever watched. But so far, it's just a normal sports documentary. But that's the problem about heightened expectations. And I, I admit that in using this podcast to say that I think it is excellent is doing exactly the same thing that I've just mm. criticised lots that's of people for doing on yeah. social media. So yeah. I apologise for that massive hypocrisy. But what I would say is that it, it, it improves in terms of what you learn about the central character, Michael Jordan, who I am assuming that prior to this point, they haven't been able to get to contribute to a documentary, regardless of whether the footage uh, was there or not. So uh, the fact that Michael Jordan is a central part of this clearly is important to the telling of the story, uh, but it's also important because it kind of serves to highlight how important he is to himself. So is, is, uh, is this just, <laughs> is it all about Michael Jordan then, or is it about Scotty Pippin? And Dennis Rodman. You see, oh, I just can just chip these names off, even though I've I just actually read an article on it. Um, I've not seen any of it, but is it is it all just about how great Michael Jordan was and his relations with his with his fellow players? Is that is that what it is? It is uh, a story of Michael Jordan told through the prism of particularly his final season with the Bulls in ninety seven ninety eight. So we get to learn all about the relationships with his players. We get to learn about how. Uh, his life and, of course, his previous five championships up until this this season and who, who the people were that he shared that time with, et cetera, et cetera. So it not only tells a story about 97, 98, it fills in the gaps by filling in backstory. So it's a kind of a fairly safe, sensible structure um, which they tell the story through. But what, what we're going to focus on today is the fact that at one point during the documentary, and Rory, I don't think you've got there yet. I know what happens because... <laughs> A, like I understand what happened with the Bulls, but also B, literally everyone tells me on Twitter literally every week. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that, <laughs> and that's it was 20 part. years ago, so <laughs> it's pretty easy to find out. But it's, um, yeah, spoiler alert. Gemma, my wife, did not know that he won the sixth. So when she found out prior to the final episode that he won the sixth, uh, she was actually quite upset about that. Um, but one of the few times that Jordan becomes noticeably emotional is when he reflects on the fact that he needed basically to be a bit of a dick to win, he thinks. And that he appears to still think that even now, what, 22 years later. And um, he gets emotional. He, he, it's one of the, I think, one of two times. The other is when he's talking about his, his dad who was murdered. Many people know the story if they haven't watched the documentary. It suggests some equivocation, even though he still says, or at least doubles down to a certain degree about the fact that to be successful as a team's leader, you have to be a bit of a dick. You have to try and inspire those around you by being that sort of a character does does for example a leader inspire the, his other teammates who are noticeably subordinate in terms of hierarchy but also in terms of talent do they do that to try and help that player achieve greatness do they do that to try and inspire them to be as good as him or does he do it because he wants them to be scared of letting him down and one of the one of the narrative threads is michael jordan wants to win a sixth if anybody else messes it up for him, he will tell them. And he tells them on a daily basis in, in practice as well. So that is one of the narrative threads that we want to try and discuss now by taking it into football. 
which is where we bring in Chinch. And we asked Chinch, in your time, were there what we would now probably consider old-fashioned dominant forces who would almost be like a second manager who would dish out discipline or even if it wasn't necessarily traditional discipline it was more like it, it is in the Jordan documentary where he's constantly ribbing and undermining to try and get them to be better is that a dynamic that some it, that you recognize and is it something that is anachronistic or is it something that you think continues to this day well from my career obviously going from 87 88 when as a, an 18 year old coming into a dressing room that that's when it started for me up, up to kind of 2002 when I was early 30s clearly one of the more senior players in the dressing room. I, I can't remember a dressing room where you had a character who was, in essence, the second manager or coach, regardless of, of what year you're talking about. It, it just didn't seem to be the case, whether that's just to do with my career, whether that was unusual, whether other clubs there, there were these really dominant characters. I'm sure that they were. But the most successful dressing room I was ever in was that Everton dressing room of, of three or four years with Joe Royal and Willie Donachie. And what I responded to, and a lot, a lot of this is about how the players around these, not these, I'd say Neville Southall and Dave Watson were dominant characters, but they weren't dominant in looking to put you down and say, do it my way. They led by example. I can't ever remember either of them screaming and shouting at anybody to try and say, this isn't good enough. You've got to do better than this. You've, you've, got, you've got to do what I do. They just basically led by example. And that's what I always responded to do on the training field as well as on a match day. And it was those kind of those quiet, strong characters. Barry Horn again would probably say a little bit more than those two, but certainly not a ranter and raver, and certainly not one saying, "Look, I'm in charge of this dressing room, and this is what you need to do." You know, the manager can have his say, but it's now down to us, and I'm the leader of this dressing room. Peter Atherton at Sheffield Wednesday, Des Walker as well. They weren't ranters and ravers, but strong characters. I felt that I responded to, and I didn't want to let them down because the type of person maybe I am, and the people that were around me responded to that as well we didn't need to be shouted at we saw coaches and managers over the years change their style of man management and maybe certain players probably would they have done that and maybe they realized that it wouldn't work and they just needed to lead by example and that that's what maybe I hoped to try and do and I was getting to the end of my career a lot of injuries a lot of time on the sidelines a lot of young players at Sheffield Wednesday I talked to them an awful lot because I thought I'm not a captain. I was only captain once in 450 games. That tells you something. I was a sheep, not a shepherd. But I was quite willing to speak to these young lads about injuries and about giving them in my own way, if they asked me as well. I wouldn't go after them saying, this is what you need to do. Because I didn't feel that my career gave me the, the credibility to actually go and say to other people what you should do. I felt I'd missed out on an awful lot and let myself down an awful lot as well. But still, at the end of my career, I did get the opportunity to speak to a lot of young players, not really as a captain, but just hopefully to give them a, a few ideas. And I've seen those players now who are in other walks of life and other jobs within football. And they do remember the, the chats that we had. So clearly, again, maybe leading by example, talking to people in the right way. But it definitely changed over the, the 16, 17 years that I played. Dressing rooms did change. A lot of foreign players coming into a dressing room, a lot of the English players, British players, didn't know how to speak to them. So I think there was a difficulty there where people would rather say nothing than say anything. So the dynamic did very definitely change. But during my career, I can't, I can't remember a single person who I thought, maybe, maybe one, maybe Carlton Palmer, when he was at, came to Sheffield Wednesday. But again, I don't know whether Carlton Palmer was playing Carlton Palmer because to me it seemed a little bit manufactured and a little bit weird the way that he kind of talked it was as if there was a camera on him and he was he was playing up to the role as well so I, I would play with some really brilliant players strong characters and guys that led by example and that's what really appealed to me would Des Walker not not fit that bill of the sort of player who maybe wasn't a shouter but was quite an intimidating presence um intimidate I wouldn't say he was intimidate but again he was the type of person that you wanted to play well for and if you play alongside him like I did even if as an international he was obviously played a lot more times than, than I ever did I, I felt an obligation to play well for myself and probably then looking at Peter Atherton and, and Des Walker as the two other guys that I would look around and say well if they look at me and say you've done well today I must have done okay so again he wasn't really he, he said an awful lot Des but he didn't he didn't train an awful lot he hardly trained during the week and just played he wasn't the greatest person out on the training field. So that didn't really suit him. But strangely, he went into coaching when he finished playing, which was kind of strange because he never really spoke to a lot of the young players at Sheffield Wednesday and, and maybe tried to give them some of his experience and help them along. He didn't really do that. He had, he was very, he had a very strong opinion, and that was based on the career he'd have and the performances week in and week out he put in. 
but he wasn't really someone who maybe like me would sit down and, and talk to the players and, and give them a word or two here or there. He just, I, I think he wanted to be the person he was and just play. And then maybe when he retired and had the luxury of time, then he thought, you know what, coaching maybe is for me and maybe I can become a slightly different person, which you have to be to then coach because you have to get that information across, which as a player doesn't come natural to, to every player, regardless of how good they were. So, yeah, Des was, I, I really enjoyed being around Des. He did have his, of course, he had his faults as well. He had some massive pluses, but he, uh, he was one of my, yeah, one of my favorite teammates. But again, he, he wasn't really, he didn't, you know, stand up after a game and rant and rain, point fingers and say, you know, I was, I was nine out of 10, everyone else was five. What's going on here? Wasn't like that at all. Having described that dressing room dynamic, Chinch, was that then perhaps something that perhaps was missing? Because I'd imagine the really, really successful teams of that time, you think about Manchester United in the mid to late 1990s, Arsenal, early 2000s, they did have those sort of characters. Yeah, well, I suppose Everton's as close as you're going to get the success that we have there. Um, and, and Dave Watson, Neville Southall, um, Barry Horn are the three that I would pick out as being the most influential. But yeah, you look at Tony Adams and Roy Keane, they, they were. But again, you're going back probably a little bit further you know, into the 90s, I think maybe as you got into the 2000s, things did start to change a little bit. And I don't know whether, again, Roy Keane's type of approach, he can't have been like that all the time, you know, wanting to put people up against the wall. That can't have been his, what he did every single time. I'm sure that it wasn't. I've seen pictures of him smiling quite a lot when he was at United. So he must have had a nice time as well. But again, yeah, I'm sure he was, uh, he was that, but again, that, that's more, he was unusual and Tony Adams was maybe unusual. It's not that everybody should be like this. I think 99% of players aren't actually like that. And they don't feel they've got the right to actually step forward and say, you know what, I can tell you all, all how we should be doing this. Surely that's the, um, that's the, the, the reality of it is that you, you have to be a player of a certain level to take that approach. You can't, you can't be a solid Premier League midfielder. I'm trying to think of an example. I have literally forgotten the names of all of the footballers. Mm. You, you can't be, in fact, I don't even think there are any Premier League teams now. It's really embarrassing. You can't be John Joe Shelby and take that approach to your teammates because your teammates will be a bit like, hang on, you're John Joe Shelby, what you yeah, doing? Yeah, sometimes that does happen. We talked about Ray Atterbelt, who maybe had a, again, it's a bit of a shell and it's a, you're creating an image that isn't really you. You're trying to put out this image of being much better than you actually are. I, I again, never, never fell for that. I know what I was good at and what I wasn't so good at. But I'd, I'd speak to literally, you know, younger, 18-year-olds, 28, it made no difference to me because there was always something to be said and something to be, to be learned from that. And I always like to say with Carlton Palmer, maybe it all seemed a little bit kind of a bit manufactured and a little bit affected. And I, I just I just thought this this to me doesn't doesn't seem right. And that that can't be because, again, the really great captains or characters or, or dominant forces that I've been written. And that, that's why Everton, again, that, that's the, the bar that have been set with those three players that I've mentioned. They didn't do any of that type of behaviour. So, and that's what I consider. I've mentioned it before about being a real man, a real professional footballer. That is what I was trying to attain. And it isn't about shouting and ranting and raving and putting people up against the wall. It's about getting the best out of your teammates around you. And they led by example. So you don't need to be a, a shouter to get the, the best out of people around you. What did Carlton Palmer do? Because, I mean, I watched Carlton Palmer play football and... and mm. I'm not sure that I would have held Carlton Palmer up as... Or, or even defined it as football. <laughs> was <laughs> well, he not yeah, the John like, Joe Shelby of his day? No, I mean, that's a bit harsh on Shelby. Carlton Palmer was, was a, a decent-ish Premier League midfielder. For yeah. yeah. Hang on a minute, he won about 25 England caps. Yeah, he won probably four times as many. But again, if it's, if it's it, listen, it isn't that kind of competition. It's not a cap competition here, is it? But maybe it is. But Carlton, I think Carlton had a, and again, whether I've, I've not met him since, so I don't know whether he's still that type of person or not. But I, again, I felt in the dressing room, he did, he put on, a, a to me, a bit of an act and it did seem a little bit surreal and not quite right. But it, that, I might be doing him a disservice and that might be how he's been since he was a kid all the way through to today. And that's just, again, he would be unusual if that was the, because that was very, very rare. Well, for anybody who doesn't know Carlton Palmer, he's a, a midfielder who a former manager of his once described him as a player who covers every blade of grass because his first touch is that bad. <laughs> See, so, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into, involved with mudslinging here, Stephen. But again, he's just, he's just someone I'm thinking if we're talking about these type of loud, but again, I wouldn't put him in the same category. I've never been in a dressing room with Roy Keane. I wouldn't want to be, but I, I just get a sense that actually, Roy Keane wouldn't be like that. He wouldn't be that kind. Carlton's someone that kind of, 
if you're going to put a, make a kind of a mock documentary, like an office type of uh, documentary about football, he would be the type of person that you would have because fans or people watching the game might expect that that's what's at least every dressing room has as one of that type of person in there, which in my experience, it didn't. But going back to this point about whether that was something that was missing from, from the dressing room, is that then again part of the, the greatness of some of these not only brilliant footballers, but also very vocal and, and perhaps even physical presences in the dressing room, that they are able to read that environment, that a Roy Keane or a Tony Adams or a, or a Jordan are able to assess the players that they've got around them and it's not necessarily a case of saying I need to lead by example and they will follow that every so that might contribute 90 95 percent but that every so often I am going to have to read the riot act just to make sure that I get those tiny few extra percent that is going to make the difference between being a champion or or not becoming a champion it might be, as Rory said, down to that individual. And maybe it's in, and it has to be, again, it has to be within them already. Whatever line of work they're in, they'd probably be that type of all or nothing. And I expect all or nothing from people around me as well. So I don't think it's actually the job that made, say, Tony Adams or Roy Keane, for example, as they were. And it may be of their time as well, because as I said, once you got into the 2000s, that I think coaching and managing certainly changed. Dressing rooms changed because the, the makeup of a dressing room was changing. Financially, there was players coming in earning four or five times what the, the existing players were earning. And certainly at Sheffield Wednesday, when a lot of the Dutch players came in, Gilles de Bilder, a Belgian player, came in as well. There was a definite kind of a line kind of between the players coming in, the, the, the foreign players coming in, and the, the, the British players already at the club. So again, that's bound to cause it. When no one really said anything to anybody, we kind of just stumbled through and maybe you needed someone there to actually stand but whether it worked I, I don't know but at Sheffield Wednesday it clearly didn't because we, we got relegated even though we we're a decent side you had Vim Yonk in there Nicholas Alexander we had a very good team actually Des Walker so clearly maybe something was but if we didn't have the character to stand up and be a Tony Adams or Roy Keane it probably would have helped that extra two or three percent might have made the difference but we didn't have that type of character I just because maybe I played as many games as anybody else I'm not that type of person to think well I'm good enough or played well enough consistently enough to stand up and tell everybody else what to do we'll come on to talk about the the fact that cliques developed perhaps because of what you've just been speaking about in club football chinch towards the end of the 90s and early 2000s because you had that experience with England as well England was England was the worst I'd ever seen that was crazy we'll talk about that in just a second but but to go back to 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 this point finally before we do move on and 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 having that leader in the dressing room that the thing that you notice about Michael Jordan is that he takes everything particularly personally now he does that to motivate himself because any source of slight from a from an opponent or anything like that he uses as fuel to the fire and clearly that's something that's been incredibly successful but to give Carlton Palmer potentially a little bit more credit than he might have got up until this point in the in the podcast is there a chance that he might have seen that there was a vacuum into which he needed to insert that kind of character whether he was playing it or whether he felt that he was actually naturally like that himself because mm. if if he had had the experience either from those who had taught him or from previous clubs from the playing staff that, that, that a team succeeded because they had that leader, whether it was an act or whether it was naturally from within them. If a, if a team has that, like the Bulls had Jordan, he, he, did he not put himself in that position to try and drag everybody along, to try and mo- motivate them? And if it's not Carlton Palmer that did that, when you do talk about players like Tony Adams or Roy Keane, can you see that they are intelligent enough to sense what's missing around them and even if it is an extension of themselves and not their natural uh, personality and probably with Tony Adams and Roy Keane it was a little bit more natural for Carlton Palmer who knows but there is is there not a sense of that person being intelligent enough to understand what a team needs and to play that role in order to make the team succeed I just wonder, again, it'd be a good question for Tony Adams and Roy Keane to say, well, did, did over, over time, over your careers, did, did you have to maybe change the way that you talk to your teammates? Because I think Roy Keane's actually talked about this, that he just, you know, with Wayne Rooney, he didn't understand what they were talking about and the stuff they were interested in. So he, he saw as he got older and younger players came in, he was thinking, I've got absolutely nothing. And actually, I, I do feel that if, if you behave like, say, Carlton Palmer or maybe Roy Keane today, players would laugh at you. They wouldn't find it intimidating and think, I've got to knuckle down. And, and do. they, 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 would, they would laugh at you. And also, I think there's a lot of players that were laughing at, at coaches. I know at Sheffield Wednesday this happened as well, where they would 
certain players would, would laugh at the coaching staff because of what they were saying or how they were going about things or, or the kit that they were wearing. They, again, it's just, it was just how football had changed and maybe, again, the, the power had swung the way of the players, which was very definitely true. And certain players felt that they could behave in any way that they wanted to do and criticise whoever they wanted to do. So with Carlton, yeah, you may be right. He felt that there was a bit of a vacuum there. I, I don't feel that is the case because the stories I've heard about Carlton is, is maybe that's the type of character he was anyway. But maybe, again, that could possibly have worked, in, in my opinion, in the 80s and 90s. Once we went beyond that and players were a little bit more savvy, they had a bit more power, they certainly had a lot more money and people were listening to the players, the hierarchy, a lot more than they ever were that they weren't ever going to really listen to someone else in their dressing room and think, well, you know what, I'll play today for you. They were a lot of playing for themselves and playing for the, the money and, and just the opportunity really to, to, to further themselves. They weren't really looking at it. It's like these interpersonal relationships. I definitely think that was the case, that the game and certainly dressing rooms become more impersonal. And that's when you get clicks and everything else where people stick with people who they know, feel and, and think the, the, the same way that they do. I think I know the answer to this. I'm sure it's got something to do with profile or, or the amount of money now involved. But it, it intrigues me really that the dynamic of a dressing room would change over time or that the dynamic of a dressing room would be different as the eras of football change. Because it feels like a, a relationship amongst players that would remain fairly consistent, almost irrelevant to, to the level that you were playing at or the prize that was at stake. You, you've, it would seem to me as though there'd be that mix of youth and experience and, and that in turn would lead to that mix of those who were, those who were shouters and those who were listeners. I, I can only say from, from like say early, to, say late 80s, say 19, say go from 1990 to 2002 and the, the dressing rooms were vastly different places. Yeah, you're saying in, in theory it should be the same. You're both all footballers, all meant to be working together for the, for the common cause, but it's how those players think about themselves and how they think about each other. And finances can put huge distances between players. Well, you've got to remember that. If you've got foreign players coming in, like we did at Wednesday, and you hear the type of money that they were earning compared to what everybody else was earning, that automatically thinks, well, we're on the same team, but you're on another planet financially. And that's where problems do start to get. It's amazing how you might think, well, that's only a small thing. That doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter when you're trying to win games. Well, yeah, it does, because if we win he's getting paid more than me and I'm probably running further than him and care about it more than he does. So it starts just to build the, the doubts about whether everybody is in it for the right reasons. So it is about the makeup and about how the people feel about each other. And that's why at Everton, I think we were very lucky in terms of, yes, hopefully everybody was well, well paid to do the job, but there was a mutual respect for literally everybody in that dressing room, whether it be Neville Southall down to Jason Keir and the number two goalkeeper, everybody played their part and everybody was treated with respect. And that is, trust me, that is really rare to have a group of men. Yes. At different ages, but who can actually work so incredibly well together because that's, that's ultimately what we had at, at Everton is everyone giving themselves up for the good of the team, but everybody has to give themselves up for the good of the team. Eight or nine out of the 11 isn't good enough. It needs to be everybody. And that's the skill of a coach and a manager, bringing all these personalities together, blending them and moving people out of the way who clearly won't work in that, in that kind of setup. I think it's, it's really interesting that there's been the shift in, in dynamics in football, as Chinch says, between kind of the, power, the power resting gradually with the players more than the coaches. And then there's also been like this societal shift where... I mean, Mourinho struggled with it particularly. Like Mourinho works really well when he's got a lot of grizzled warriors around him who he can convince have been in some way wronged by the world and that he's the general who will help them set that right. And he's found it quite hard, I think, fairly well documented, to get into the mindset of players who are in their mid-20s now and, and not, on, not, only just have, not only have some of the social values, I guess, of, of, of millennials, but also have grown up throughout their football and education in that world where they have the power, they have agency. They're not used necessarily to subsuming that their wishes to a coach, that their view, I guess, of management and change might know more about this than me is less that they are soldiers for the coach to sacrifice when needed and more that the coach is there to help them express their talent. That's that I think is how a lot of things have shifted in the world of in the, in terms of the, the power dynamic between the, the player and the coach and all of that should mean that that idea of the, the sort of totemic leader, the player who is the rabble rouser and the the bully and the, the kind of the standard setter, 
that should have fallen by the wayside, really, and football should have become a lot more kind of egalitarian in that sense. But I do wonder whether part of the reason that Jordan is such a great example of it, apparently, in this otherwise relatively average documentary that is currently on, on Netflix and ESPN, is, is, a, is the difference between US sport and British sport or European sport, which is that US sports always had that culture of the star in a way that football for a long time kind of mitigated against. Like, obviously, there were star players, but part of the skill of coaching or, or team building was making sure that you, you didn't become a team that was completely reliant on, on one person, which is why one man team is an insult. So, if you, yeah, if you, you know, the Liverpool of Steven Gerrard was a one man team, nobody took that as a compliment, even though in Gerrard, Liverpool kind of had a, a less successful but similar kind of player in profile to Jordan. He was the one who lifted everybody around him. Um, but I, and I wonder if that's changing now if we are now in an era of stars in football who have that same power and that same kind of agency as Jordan did in, in basketball or as LeBron does now or Steph Curry or whoever, that, that football is much more akin to that where there are certain players across, the, across Western Europe, the major leagues, that have sufficient power that they, they have the right really to demand more of their teammates. And I wonder if that offsets a lot of of the other kind of changes that would mean that would make it effectively impossible to have a player in that position for a player to behave as Jordan does in the last dance. Well, the mitigating circumstances for Jordan, at least the, 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 the picture they're trying to paint, is that he is that good. He is the best player to ever play the game of basketball. And so in order to try and maximise that person's uh, potential and, and try to maximise that person's career in terms of greatness and achievements of titles and championships, clearly this is a mitigating circumstance to a person's behavior because, well, look, I succeeded. There it is on paper. Is there not at least something of a parallel to be drawn in the current era of football because you've got the likes of Ronaldo and Messi who are two of the greatest players to ever play the game? I don't think you could tell the Jordan story of many players in any sport. You have to be one of the greatest who ever have played the game. And many will say that Jordan is the, the greatest basketball player of all time. So what, what about the relationship between Messi and, and, and his team and Messi and those above as well? What about the relationship of Cristiano Ronaldo, particularly I would imagine at Real Madrid? Is, is that at all comparable to something that, that Michael, the relationship that Michael Jordan um, fostered with his teammates and indeed the atmosphere, the dynamic that we've been speaking about in the, as it would be in American locker room? I do think there is a difference and picking up on, on both what Rory and Hugh have just said is that we are now seeing the, the superstar footballer and in, you know, in many ways, because it is a global sport, Ronaldo and Messi are even bigger icons than, than Jordan ever was because of the popularity of the sport that they play. But it's much harder. You can't have a situation where you can just have one great player in a football team and that turns them into a winning team. They have to have other very, very good, if not exceptional players around them to make that happen. Whereas in the NBA, in the NHL in particular, one genuine standout contributor can make the difference between being even a tanking team to, to becoming a successful team and certainly from taking a, a mid-ranking team into one that is capable of challenging for the top prize. So that is another interesting dynamic between what we see from that superstar, superstar contributor in US sport to what we're used to in terms of European sport. You um, just want to make a point defending US sport. <laughs> He could try. I'm going to try and make it. A, a, well, the, the document, documentary tells the story about the, uh, how big Jordan was in the early to mid 90s. So you can make your own decisions about uh, the comparison between um, Jordan and his global appeal and, and, and everything that's going on with Messi and Ronaldo or has been for the last 10 years or so. So other people will be able to make up their minds on that. I appreciate Steve hasn't yet seen the documentary. So that will be as enlightening to him as it is uh, to many other people. But there is a sense about Jordan's contribution that, yes, he was able to help build a team around him. But yes, those players were subservient. They were, they were not as good as him, but he improved them rather than him just dragging a number of no names to a title on his own shoulders. Except, did he improve them? And this surely is the, is the crux of the matter. Did Jordan's approach make those players better? Or did those players get better despite, or not even necessarily despite Jordan's approach, but regardless of Jordan's approach? Was it actually the mix of talent, of, of talent that was there? You know, Steve Kerr was a good basketball player. Scotty Pippen was a good basketball player. We, we, we'll never know, I guess, but 
to me, the risk of the, of the Jordan style approach of that kind of bullying leadership, and it's why bullying's a, a loaded sort of pejorative word, but that style of leadership is a real risk because there will be a lot of players in any sport who do not respond well to it, for whom that is a really, really counterproductive, undermining experience. In terms of, of Messi and Ronaldo, I think their relationships with the hierarchies of their clubs are exactly the same as Jordan's was with the Bulls. Certainly at Real Madrid, there was this sense that you cannot do anything to upset Cristiano Ronaldo, which is why when anybody signed a contract anywhere else in the world, Florentino Perez would go to Cristiano and say, Cristiano, do you, do, you, do you want a pay rise? There was this thing where he had to be paid as much as everybody else, which Messi has had as well. So that, that without a shadow of a doubt, mirrors what Jordan had at the Bulls. I think what's interesting about Messi and Ronaldo, and it's the different cases... So because Messi came through with a lot of his teammates, even now, PK, Busquets, uh, until relatively recent, recently, Iniesta as well, I think that he probably doesn't have the ability to... You know, you know how when you go back to visit your family, no matter how old you are, you become a kid again. Mm-hmm. Like you're treated as a child because you are their child. I think there's an element of that with Messi at Barcelona that, that he can't become the person who who suddenly undermines everybody else because he's known PK and, and Busquets since he was a kid. Like there would be a part of them, I think. I don't Not that I know the ins and outs of their relationships, but there'd be a part of both of them who'd be like, Leo, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you talking to me? Like, I've, won, I've won just as much as you have and a World Cup and European Championship, so let's, let's all just pipe down a little bit. And interestingly, at Real, which is a slightly more dysfunctional club, or it was until recently, Barcelona's pretty dysfunctional, Ronaldo was a power base at Real, but there were other power bases. So Sergio Ramos, Casillas was a, was a power base. There, there was, that was kind of offset by Ronaldo and, and his kind of little clique of Marcelo and a couple of others. But the, he wasn't the, the, the only powerful force in that dressing room, which I think probably offsets how much he can sort of talk down to everybody else. Plus the fact, of course, that they'd all won it. That all he was obviously the, you know he's one of the greatest players of, of all time he, the joint greatest player of his generation, um, but I don't think Sergio Ramos is going to sit around and listen to Cristiano Ronaldo tell him to be better when he's Sergio when he's Sergio Ramos, so I, I wonder if there wasn't quite whether the Jordan situation was relatively unique in the sense that you had this one standout player and this collection of other players who had come from elsewhere to be added to this project that had been built around a standout player. Whereas at Real Madrid, Ronaldo not only had all of the history of Real Madrid and a massively powerful president, but he was going into a dressing room that already had its own dynamics that were not about to, they'd accommodate him, but they certainly weren't going to bow down to him. And I think that that probably means that the Jordan situation is relatively unique. I wonder if Roy Keane is the best parallel. But again, you had Keane as a player of a slightly different generation to your Beckhams, your Butts, your Nevilles, all that. He was a bit older. He'd come from elsewhere. He'd had a different upbringing. They were brought through as kids. So when, he, when they were first exposed to Roy Keane, he was the, the senior pro almost, and, and they were the kids. So they would always have had that respect for him. I think that's maybe the best parallel in a way that Ronaldo and Messi isn't. But many of those players often talk of being inspired by Eric Cantona's yeah. brilliance rather than being motivated by Roy Keane, even though I'm absolutely sure that they were. And, and going back to a point that Chinch made earlier, having interviewed, and I can speak probably for Hugh and, and myself here, having interviewed Roy Keane quite a few times, I always felt like I was going to end up pinned up against the wall <laughs> after those exchanges. So who knows whether he was actually like that all of the time. One, one word and a look was enough for, for Roy Keane. Just on the, 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 the Jordan element, just briefly before, before we move on to, to the idea of cliques and, and losing or winning back a lost dressing room is that most people would find it unsurprising to hear that the narrative that the Jordan documentary tries to tell is that he was successful in making those players better and that he was uh, a, a driver behind that, a catalyst behind their greatness, yeah, but not just for himself, but for, for others. And that is because it's his documentary. He's probably telling it the way that he wants to. And it is also why there has been some subsequent uh, displeasure from the likes of Scotty Pippen, uh, Ron Harper as well. And, it's, and, and that, that may well be true. It may well be the case that Jordan drove them all on to heights of greatness they couldn't previously have imagined. But I think, again, it will never be known. It may well be that, that Jordan could have taken a totally different approach and had the same result. 
And obviously, in the retelling of his own story, Michael Jordan will say, well, look, actually, I was, I was kind of a dick, but look at the results I got, so I was justified in being a dick. But that, that is, that's just not good science. <laughs> Although the, the equivocation when he, he does say that, I was a bit of a dick, but then he, he has tears in his eyes asking himself a question, should I have been, could I have been different, uh, is, is, a, is a very small window into a part of it that I don't think he was necessarily as willing uh, to tell. So Chinch, Cleeks. Can I just ask a quick question? Did yes. Michael Jordan know the documentary and the cameras were there? Yes. Yes. So again, I just wonder whether that starts to play, because I, not, not that I would act massively different, but I think if you've got cameras on you, you, you do tend to turning up in your red BMW estate, red BMW estate with all the with all the rubbish for the tip in the back. But you do, do you remember? Do you remember how big TV cameras were in the nineteen nineties? Change. It's really difficult to have missed them. Oh no! But again, I just wonder if you put camera. I know I I have to play a bit of a. I'm, the person that I am isn't really that. I, I could. I'm amazed actually that I'm able to do what I do and look into a camera because I've never been that comfortable looking into people's eyes. So again, again, you have to put on a bit of a show to get the job done. And I'm not ranting and raving. I'm just trying to get the job done. So I just wonder, with, would Michael Jordan, if the cameras hadn't been there, would he, would he have reacted any differently? Would he behaved any differently? Hard to tell, though, isn't it? If he thinks he's been a dick, then I think it's probably fair to assume, in defence of Michael Jordan, that he almost forgot the cameras were there and was a dick despite them. And also they do say that particularly when you have fly on the wall documentaries is that you notice the cameras there for the first few hours and thereafter it becomes something that you're so used to that it doesn't actually necessarily affect your, uh, your behavior or at least the program makers would like to make you think that. Um, so Chinch, we spoke earlier on about cliques. You, you talked about how they come about. Tell us about the effect of them. And, and you were speaking about the different nationalities in the Wednesday dressing room, but also particularly at England, how club-based cliques yes, yes, uh, yes. saw you very much on the outside and having your breakfast half an hour earlier than everybody else. And that, that was basically what it was. It was those club, the club lines, they were certainly drawn. And I, I had been warned about this because Barry Horn, I don't know how, well, he must, again, you know, there's a lot of people, Barry. And when I got called up, and when I was going to be meeting up, he said, just be aware of what you're stepping into here, the environment you're stepping into. And it's been like this for a long time and it isn't any different now. You have the Liverpool players, the Man United players, the Arsenal players, and kind of this kind of in the middle of the Venn diagram, you've got people like myself and, uh, and Graham Lasso who, who kind of speak to everybody but aren't really part of any of the, of the serious cliques. And they've talked about it for a long time with England. Again, what can go wrong? What, what, can, what can happen? When, when you have an environment like that. And I was probably best placed to see it because, again, new on the scene, they've just had Euro 96 when things had gone reasonably well, but things had started to change. Newer players were coming in. They had that dominance from, um, from United and the Liverpool players as well, who genuinely really didn't speak to each other. So, again, he got no common ground. How on earth are you meant to move forward when you're doing this? So, well, it's just because it's England. They're all star players. Yeah, but there were certain players clearly willing to, to, to give themselves up a little bit more. But they, they're banging their head against the wall. It was never going to happen because this was not going to happen across the board because United players were United players and Liverpool players were Liverpool players. And they are just not going to... It's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. They, they play together for England to a degree, play, and then kick lumps out of each other when Liverpool played Man United and take great pleasure in doing that as well. So, I, it's, again, it wasn't just the time that I was there the couple of years. This had been going on for quite a while. There's been stories that, again, Gareth Southgate's tried to change this and make it more of a club mentality. But again, if you're trying to do that, it has to be down to the, the players and the mentality they bring into the dressing room. And again, if players are changing and the England squad is probably a lot younger on average than, than England squads of the past, they haven't got all that, that baggage that they bring along with them. They may be more willing, more used to giving themselves up to the, to the team ethic. So maybe there's more of a chance for England to be successful with this younger generation who maybe think a bit, a little bit differently. I'm more in contact with each other a lot more and we don't have these tribal land, uh, lines drawn in the sand, which clearly been a problem for a long, long time with England. Does that happen at clubs as well that you get little cleats? I remember hearing from Charles, Charlie Adam, mm -hmm. that at Stoke, you, one of the things that staggered him when he, I guess when he joined or a year or two after he joined was that you'd, he'd go in and nobody in the dressing room really spoke to each other except the, Lads who spoke French spoke French to each other. Mm -hmm. Bojan was speaking to Mark Muniesa as they spoke Spanish, and and he and and he said they were all staring at their phones constantly, yeah. Yeah. which is true, yeah. obviously, of all of us. But also, I guess, is particularly true of a lot of young men in the mid twenties. 
Mm. I, I suppose if I was, you know, if I were to go abroad into a, a Spanish dressing room and there's a couple of English players there, you're naturally going to speak to the. English. I suppose that's that's again. Are we being overly critical here and saying, well, it's mm. it's all their fault? I, I really don't. Oh think no no no, absolutely not. Fault. I think it's... It, Wednesday happened that with the Dutch players that came in, they basically stuck to themselves. But then you had Vim Yonk and um, Gerald Sibon, who were very unusual characters I would say as well it wasn't just the fact that they were, were, were Dutch they could speak English perfectly well but I, I do when they when they started chatting away in Dutch you think kind of paranoia kicked in you think oh, are they are they you're waiting to hear your own name and think are they slagging me off here because they think that's so so again it, it just it just breeds that kind of that worry within a dressing room that you're not all going for the same goal here <laughs> same. literally it's it's a it's very strange and it, it, it's something that actually you just get used to and you just have to get on with it and think, well, actually, he's not going to speak to him. We, we just have to try and do the best that we can because that is how the dressing room is now. Did you, um, did you ever hear anything along the lines of die dicke Klutzak kan in bal niet beheesen en is nooit fit? Only every day. What does it mean? <laughs> it means that fat bastard can't control the ball and is never fit. <laughs> I knew they were talking about me. Tibon, Yonk, I knew it. To finish off the conversation with the supplementary question that Chris asked uh, originally on his email, can a manager win back a lost dressing room or is the damage done too problematic? It would seem, Chinch, would it not? Counterintuitive. If you've got a fracturing of a squad in modern times because of the, uh, the lines drawn down, uh, squads either international or club level, as you've uh, tried to uh, tell us, using English and not Dutch, which is something to suggest that you didn't pay any attention in the Sheffield Wednesday dressing room, but... It doesn't make sense, does it? If, if you are to lose a dressing room, that suggests that there is an, enough of a togetherness, at least against a common foe, that would be difficult to, to foster if there were cliques. So is losing a dressing room more of a modern thing? Or have you had a manager losing a dressing room over the generations? And what could Paul Jewell have done to win <laughs> back that dressing room? I was just about to say, in my experience, the only yeah, coach that I, I really felt actively shot himself in the foot was was Paul Jewell because when he came into Sheffield Wednesday he seemed to he seemed to and he, again I, I might be wrong but he seemed to think like players like Kevin Pressman, Des Walker, myself who'd kind of got to a certain because Paul I think, I think as a player really got to any great level but it, it seemed to me as if he was trying to dig us all out because we were senior players and maybe in his eyes kind of successful players and if he got to know the people that we were, I, Paul, Jill and I could have been terrific friends. But again, it just didn't work out because it, it, it's about the characters and what you bring into a dressing room, a coach as much as a player. If you come in and you feel these guys here, I've got to stick it to them because they're going to be sticking it to me because of the careers that they've had. They'll, they'll be chipping away with the young players and he doesn't know what he's doing, his training sessions. That's not what was happening at all. But we tended to feel, and I found that really odd, that type of behavior. And then he brought in players that he knew from the past and got on seemingly personally quite well with as well. So he seemed to be saying, well, I'll construct a dressing room that, that suits me. And it wasn't necessarily for the, the good of the team. It was actually to make it a bit more comfortable for him to be in there. He just, again, if you had Des, why, why try and get Des Walker's backup? A very good goalkeeper. Why would you try and upset them? Because they're going to be the people that are going to be most important to you. So it just seemed very strange that you'd create this type of atmosphere. But again, I do feel it was... Because why would you do that? I, I've never seen a coach behave like that. It doesn't make any sense to me. So again, it has to be how he thought he needed to behave to get control of the dressing room. This will show everybody that I mean business by, by talking like this to, to the senior players. But it had completely opposite effects. As soon as you, you walk out the door, Des Walker wouldn't. You need to say, what? He's, he's a dick. And as soon as you do that, as soon as someone like that says something, he can say all the complimentary things and maybe they'll get missed. But as soon as someone like that were to say something, about a coach, it, it can stick. And I'm not saying that Des necessarily did that, but over time, people tend to think this is, there's something not right here at all. And then kind of the, the, the makeup of the squad started to change and people have been brought in. And we think, well, that's not an improvement on what we've got. But again, it, it, in his own eyes, it would have improved the squad that he had because there were people that knew him and would listen to him and seemingly like him as well. But that, it, it's about getting the best out of the players that you've got. And that's the true test of a coach, players that you don't know, get them to, get them to play for you or just ask them to be professional. And it's up to them. If they don't do the job, then you can criticise them. But don't go in there saying, right, I've clearly got to draw the line with these guys because that's me making my mark. Because it just completely backfired. I think as a general rule, the amount managers lose dressing rooms is, is overstated by the media. It becomes, and that, that, that includes me. I'm not sure how much they actually have them in the first place. Well, exactly. Someone once said to me that, that 
of any dressing room, in any dressing room, the basic reality is that the players who are playing are happy, the players who are on the bench are borderline, and the players who, who are neither are unhappy. And that basically what happens most of the time is that those groups shift in terms of, they, those groups shift as different people are selected for the team. And I guess at the moment in, in, the, in the modern game, there's maybe slightly more of an emphasis on keeping the, the players who were out of the, the match day 18 happy is probably rather more important than it was 20 years ago i guess there's a great line in in another of the podcasts that i listen to i like to listen to podcasts uh, which is against the rules with michael lewis who's one of my journalistic heroes uh, and he is about this this series is about coaches in american public life but there's there's an episode that deals with the idea of chemistry and he says that that chemistry is really something that we impose later on as an explanation when in reality all all that it is is that teams that are winning tend to forget they don't like each other for a bit that's that's basically what happens if you if you're in a team that is doing well you're less likely to focus on how you don't like that guy over there because you think well, we're all doing well and i think I, I do think that losing the dressing room is is simplistic even when you when you hear about mutinies as a general rule that coach will still have a hardcore of five or six loyalists a massive bulk of players who don't really care who the coach is because if they were winning, they'd be happy. And then the problems are with three or four, not necessarily troublemakers, but people who've, who've, who've turned on the coach. And I wonder if the difference now is that you only have to lose those three, and, three or four and the club will act because the, play, the power rests so much more firmly in the hands of the players. And I think and that's maybe the difference. I don't know how much coaches ever lose dressing rooms. And that, that three or four person group could well be a clique that has developed either by nationality or a group of players who have known each other prior, whether it's from another coach or had been brought there by the previous coach. So there's perhaps a through line to be drawn between cliques and the possibility of a manager losing, inverted commas, a dressing room to the extent that they cannot win it back because those, those people who have voiced their displeasure to people of power have enough power to be able to affect, uh, affect change and prevent the manager having any sort of ability to win it back. And, apply, and applying narratives to actions retrospectively is effectively what we do for huge numbers of facets of football, isn't it? Whether that's immediately in terms of a tactical analysis of a game or in the press, in the media, in the game, in the days immediately afterwards to looking back on the great teams years, decades later. And of course, uh, that brings us, Hugh, eventually back round to how football and recent political events tie in so neatly. We could have done a podcast on it after all. Yes, this is the suggestion that Steve originally made for our subject today, but he made it when he was three scoops deep and it didn't really, <laughs> didn't, really, uh, didn't really get very much further than just a one-sentence text. Um, but nevertheless, Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Um, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. And today, Chinch, it comes in response to an email from David Keith. Which, unforgivably, David, we have to admit, has been mothballed for too long. But it keeps the Netflix theme going because he wrote uh, to us, having watched Sunderland Till I Die a while ago. And David says this. Chris Coleman delivers my favourite line of the programme in his brain fart retort to someone calling him a f***ing prick. You calling me a prick, he says. I'm a married man with six kids. Married twice. Four from the first relationship, two from the second. That's just some background. Alas, I put it to chinch, says David. What was it like, presumably being called a f***ing pr and other such fruity things, by hundreds slash thousands of folk a couple of times every single week? And two, did he ever have a confrontation with a fan a la Chris Coleman? So with our thanks to David for providing me a considerable amount of bleeping work, Chinch, over to you. I think it's unfair when you're abused by your own supporters as well. That's really harsh. It's the opposition supporters, fair enough. But honestly... That at times, in games, if you're yeah, a City player at Old Trafford or an Everton player at Anfield taking corners, free kick, I, I didn't even... Of course they're going to... That's just seemingly how, how it is. They, they chuck stuff, they, they try and put you off your stride, which they very rarely did, of picking a, a, an inch-perfect set-piece and would score from it. So that, that'll teach them. I, I'd never really... And I just, I just tended to smile. When I was going over to, say, Old Trafford at the Stretford End to take a corner, a devilish inswinger, I'd be smiling 25 yards away from the quadrant because it, there's nothing worse than if you're trying to berate someone, you want them to be upset by it. You want, to be, you want them in tears. 
I went completely the other way and I just smiled. You know, there were coins raining down on me. I, I didn't mind. I just carried on smiling. Pound coins stuck in my forehead. It didn't put me off at all. That's the only response that you can have. And I've heard some horror stories about some of the things that were said to, to certain players. But I, I'm, I'm sure horrible things were said, but I, I tended to just, to, to just blank them out and get on with it. The only real con- – I've never really had a confrontation with uh, – a, a, well, I have recently, strangely. When I was playing, I can't remember anybody ever coming up to me and having a real go and me then reacting to that. Because I was – if I performed badly, which was 90% of the time, I, you know, I was absolutely ashamed. I got into the, the BMW, red BMW estate and drove off as quickly as possible to the tip. I, I didn't want to be hanging around trying to, you know, fight my, fight, fight my case. It just, it was pointless. But I did a game recently, an Everton Man City game, which of course is the, the Hinchcliffe derby. So naturally I'm going to be pitch side for that one uh, with Victor Anichebe, who made me look very good indeed. But I, I walking from, we do the pitch side on about the halfway line at, at Goodison with Kelly Cates, I've just named dropping there. And we, we, to watch the game, you, you do your bit before the game. I was absolutely amazing. Victor was, he was okay. And you have to walk to the corner to go up into the, the corner of Everton where you sit in like a, it's not a studio, it's just a little room with the TV so you can watch the game live and, and on the monitors. But as we're walking past all the Everton fans, one of them chirped up and said, Oi, Inchcliffe, why don't you say something nice about us? And I don't know why, but I just thought, I'm not having this. And I turned and said, I do say nice things about you. And he went, oh, do you? I said, yes, I do. When you play well and things are right, I do. But when you play badly and you're terrible, I don't. And he went, oh, fair enough then. And I thought, what? That's just, again, I think fans, again, just say stuff without really expecting any kind of response. But when, when you respond, they, they don't really know where to go with this because I am fair to you when things are going well. I'll say you, you've done well. But if you're not, I'm going to say, that's my job. But again, that's the only time I can really remember where I've actually turned and not, it wasn't a confrontation, you know, there's no fisticuffs involved here. We just, I basically just, I just gave him a vocal jab, a vocal jab to the windpipe and he was, he was done and he will, he, he would have slunk away at the end of that game. It was a defeat for Everton as well. So that'll teach him. Uh, but no, no, I wasn't, I'm not an aggressive person. I, I'm not a confrontational person. So that's about the only, t- I don't know why. I don't know why I was, I wasn't angry. I just thought, that's just nonsense. And I, I hate that people do so lazily just say, oh, you don't like us, do you? Or players will say, you don't like me, do you? Well, hang on a minute. I'll just give you some evidence to the contrary. And we can maybe talk this out. But it only took, you know, 10 seconds to, to sort him out. And he, uh, he certainly won't be doing that again. Finch, you've forgotten to finish off with, uh, needless to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> needless to say, Steve... I wasn't laughing. I just felt, you know, I'm not going to laugh at some Dillard's expense, am I? I'm, a, I'm bigger than that. I just walked away, clicked my heels and, you know, sauntered off to, to spend the afternoon with Victor and Ichibi, which is, uh, which is rewarding itself. You are indeed bigger than that. But as we have ascertained during this episode of Set Piece Menu, you are not 13 billion metric tons worth of bigger uh, than Aren't that. I? And Aren't do I keep Dr. your correspondence coming into setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue finding room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I wanted to introduce that sort of story with New Tide Vorver in Van Andy's Voetbal Verhalen, which, which is, is now, now is time... For one of Andy, for another one of Andy's soccer stories. No, it isn't. It is. It is it. Yeah. Well, what's the thing no, you put on the chat here? That looks. No, that, that was just an observation of. It was oh, when you, right. it was okay, when you said yeah. that you wanted to be friends with Paul Jewell. Didn't, how... didn't he get caught on the bonnet of a BMW? Was it a BMW? Didn't he Mercedes. get Mercedes? Uh, oh, Steve remembers. Was it? Was it red? Did it? <laughs> uh, yes. Did the, it have any wheels? Did it, it, did it have any wheels? Into the world. That might that might have been his his, his I've ultimate done a lot revenge on Chinch. Carlton might be very upset. Paul might be very upset. I've said these, but it, it was, that's how they were. I am yeah. very fond of Carlton Palmer for reasons that I cannot divulge on this podcast, but I shall tell you off air and you shall be immediately proud of me. Um, but uh, I, I'm very up fond after of the fade. <laughs> coming up after the fade. But yeah, I, I was very fond of, uh, he, he was um, Graham Taylor's favourite player for England, wasn't he? Oh, Graham on. Taylor kept Carlton on picking him. Carlton Palmer was awful. But he, he kept on picking him for, why did, why did Graham Taylor pick him for England? Because Graham Taylor, who, by the way, was a lovely man, couldn't spot a decent midfielder. That's the only possible explanation.